This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. This is part three of our Romanov series, and we're going to cover yet another 10-ish years of our Russian imperial friends. So this episode features promos from Crime Crazy Podcast and the Phase of Our Lives Podcast, which can be found at the end of this episode. Twitter us at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians for updates and shenanigans. Speaking of which, we'll probably be running a poll on Twitter within the next week or so. The poll has to do with our last two parts and when you want them released. The future is in your hands. Choose wisely. Got questions? And we mean Romanoff questions. Shoot us an email at hello at dearworldlovehistory.com or find us on social media. And we'll answer them on the very last Romanov's miniseries episode and also give you a shout out. Now that all of the official podcast things are out of the way, let's travel back to Imperial Russia, October 1905. Okay, so in part two, we left off with the signing of the October Manifesto on October 30th, 1905. The Russian people were thrilled. Nicholas wasn't. Why? Well, because the October Manifesto was a big blow to his autocratic power. Now the people could have a Duma, an elected body they put into office. So the same day the manifesto was signed, a bunch of workers made their way to the Moscow jail. They wanted to, you know, get the prisoners out, and poof. Surprisingly enough, the prisoners were released. 140 of them, to be precise. Not the violent murderous types, of course. These were 140 people who had the audacity to write or say something that went against the Tsar. Now, freedom had never tasted so good, so for the first time, people could say what they wanted without being beaten or arrested, but, uh, you know, there were also people who were very much Team Czar and really quite pissed off about this whole manifesto business. So a huge group of them met up with the workers and used violence to get their point across instead of words. To round out the party, Nicholas was there too, in the form of his portrait. And so, the workers were beaten by the mob or cut up with knives, and when it was all said and done, one of the newly released prisoners was dead, and many others were injured. Great start, right? So this violent group, the Union of Russian People, also known as the Black Hundred, were super fans of Nicholas and autocratic rule. And since they were super fans, they were determined to make sure any group or person who posed a threat to their beloved Tsar was taken out. So, who was lucky enough to be in this club of marked men and women? Workers, who didn't know their place, students, because, you know, knowledge is scary, and, of course, Jews. Alright, so the Black Hundred were not a group to fuck with. With about 300,000 fun-loving members, the exciting days of the October Manifesto were far behind. This group went after anyone who, in one way or another, seemed like they might not be a fan of Nicholas's. To make it even worse... The police really didn't do a goddamn thing to stop them. Black Hundred who? The worst of their anger and violence was, of course, taken out on the Jews. Welcome to Imperial Russia, 
Land of the Pogroms. For those not in the know, a pogrom is basically a targeted attack against the Jewish populace. Not basically, it was. And during the the two weeks after the manifesto, 694 pogroms took place all over Russia. To make it even worse, it wasn't just the Black Hundred, but the average Russian people took part as well. That's great, right? Love thy neighbor, not a thing. Russia's a huge empire with millions of people, right? Imagine how small the Jewish population is in comparison. Their homes were burned to the ground, people stole from Jewish stores, and even worse, the synagogues, okay? Men, women, and children were murdered. If you thought the government might be concerned about all this violence against Jewish citizens, you'd be dead fucking wrong. Right, so members of the government and the police ignored it, and Nicholas, well... He may not have given the order, but he sure as fuck wasn't lifting a finger to stop it. So Russians at that time referred to Jewish people as Yids, which is an extremely offensive way to refer to Jews. They were the less desirable of all the Russian subjects. It's a nice thing to be, right? Makes you feel welcome, warm, cosseted. And God forbid they forgot that they were at the bottom of the totem pole. So that's what the programs were all about, needing a scapegoat and teaching Jews a lesson. Which lesson would that be? Fuck if we know. So to give you an idea of how terrible these pogroms were, here are a few details about one that happened in Kishinev two years before. An incredible specimen of humanity had what amounted to flyers printed and handed out to the Russian people. It was essentially a call to arms to come together on Easter in honor of Jesus and the Tsar to murder Jews. I mean, who needs Easter egg hunts when you can hunt Jews instead? Natural transition, right? Let us massacre these monsters, is what was written on these flyers. You know, very spiritual. So this wonderful holiday event went on for three whole days. At the end of this, 57 Jewish people were dead, among them two babies and a 12-year-old boy. And 500 Jewish people were injured. 1,400 Jewish houses and businesses were decimated, either through thievery or destruction. As a result, about 2,000 families were left with nothing, nowhere to live, no livelihood to peddle. And the czar, you ask? Hmm. The czar basically shrugged. Jews? Serves them right. Pogroms weren't a new thing in Russia, so Nicholas isn't the one who brought them about. But he is another czar in a long line of them who let them happen. Pogroms have been taking place for hundreds of years in Russia, as well as the rest of Europe. Okay, so in Russia, there were more than 1,400 laws created specifically for Jews. They dictated how and where they lived, what jobs they could have, taxes that were higher simply for being Jewish, and education. I mean, the fucking what now? But, okay. Yeah, so if you haven't seen Fiddler on the Roof, which takes place in Imperial Russia, that's your homework assignment for this episode. Behind the amusing familial and village things lies the story of how Jews were treated under the czars. Not that it was any better after them, either, to be honest. So, why so much background? Because Nicholas and Alexandra had basically told themselves a bedtime story about 1905. It was the Jews! They're responsible for all the strife and all the turmoil. Not the Russian Christians. Nope, always the Jews. Speaking of numbers, okay, so the Jewish population was around 5.2 million strong at this point. Russian Christians, that would be Eastern Orthodox, okay, on the other hand, were about 82.1 million strong. 
right? 4% of the population versus 69%. So yeah, it was definitely all the Jews. Were some Jews involved in the uprising? Mm, could be. Hard to say since they mostly kept to themselves. And we didn't really come across any concrete data regarding Jewish involvement. Did they lead or start it, though? No. So the stirrings of revolution have been put out in terms of the masses. But there were still people behind the scenes who wanted nothing more than to see the end of autocratic rule. Their inspiration was none other than Karl Marx. Marxist ideology revolves around the idea of the people owning and running things, not one powerful person running things. No rich versus poor, no have versus have-nots, everyone is equal in work, ownership, and pay. Otherwise known as communism. And how did you establish communism? Why, through revolution, of course. So Russian communists called themselves social democrats, but don't be fooled by the name. They were not the peace-loving kind, and most of them actually lived outside of Russia. Nor were they Democrats. So Nicholas was very much not a fan. So they had to run away and work outside the Russian borders. And this work included coming up with material that went against the Tsar and everything he stood for and getting it into Russia. Their goal was to fan the revolutionary flames or light them if the flames weren't around just yet. And who was one of the Russians who hopped on board the communist train? None other than Vladimir Ulyanov, otherwise known as Lenin, you know? He became known that later on. So ironically enough, he wasn't a peasant or from a worker's background. Lenin was much more upper crustic. Dad was a bureaucrat, while mom came from an aristocratic background. An interesting start for Mr. Revolution himself. All right, so some quick background since he's an important player later on, obviously. He was born in 1870, and while he was one smart cookie... He was apparently a little brat, okay? So in 1887, his older brother was caught plotting the death of Alexander III with 72 of his fellow students. I mean, what else would you do, I guess? All right, so Alexander Ulyanov was at university at this point, and he was hanged as a result, okay? At this point, Lenin was 17 years old. Is this one of the reasons he took the path that he did? Eh, we don't know. It definitely could have been. I'd like to point out that just about any time people were caught plotting to kill the leader of a country, it usually meant a death sentence. So Lenin's brother wasn't a special case, and definitely not the first or the last. But you know, when in doubt, revolt. So that same year, fall 1887, Lenin himself went to Kazan University, but was kicked out a few weeks later for participating essentially in a student rally. Then... He took the hardened path of a revolutionary, scrimping and scraping, right? No. No, he did not. Lenin lived with his mom on her family's land while working on his law degree and devouring books on socialism. Next step was to become a lawyer, right? Still wrong. Lenin's job occupation would have read, Revolutionary. It was time to take down the Tsar. But wait, after being an active member of St. Petersburg's Revolutionary Underground, the cops caught their man, and so he went to prison for a year, and then the gulag. Oh, sorry, we meant comfortable vacation-like exile in Siberia for three years. Why? Because he came from a really nice wealthy family. And did the revolutionary deny this special treatment? <clears throat> of course not. So, equality for all, no special rich people, except when I've been arrested, then treat me special. Good job, Lenin. He got to pick where he lived, a village near Mongolia, and arrived with 100 books in tow and 1,000 rubles. Not bad for a punishment, right? 
Somebody exile me somewhere with a hundred books. Please, I beg of you. So when his exile ended in 1901, he moved his operation into Europe, Geneva, Switzerland, to be precise, and started writing a newspaper by the name of Spark. And of course, this newspaper was secretly brought into Russia. By Lenin's logic, if people read the newspaper, maybe they would overthrow the Tsar. It's at this point that the name Lenin was born, a nom de plume, so he could avoid ending up with his head on the chopping block, whether he was in or outside of Russia. The secret police weren't just policing Russians in Russia. To be frank, Lenin wasn't a romantic figure in the least. He had a set way of living and doing things, not unlike Alexander III, ironically enough. So he was very much set in his ways. His motto was work, work, and uh, more work, because you need nothing more in life. Lying around on a couch wasn't on the agenda. Neither was listening to music. Apparently, he said something along the lines of, I don't listen to music. It makes me want to do stupid, kind things when I should beat people over the head instead. Like, that's me like super paraphrasing that. Um, but yeah, so that's the guy you want in charge of things. It makes me feel like I should go to a dinner party with him and right. turn on music. <laughs> so he do kind, stupid things. Mm-hmm. Naturally. Um, Okay, so, you know, didn't enjoy the simple pleasures of life. That's sad, but okay. So the revolution was all that mattered to him. While Marx was of the opinion that the workers were the ones to lead and bring forth a revolution, Lenin figured that it had to be a couple of select people in charge, smarter people. Okay, so not all people are equal. There are actually better people, but okay, whatever. Already we see a difference in the way the two thought about and really considered what communism was, right? Where he wanted an immediate revolution, other social democrats wanted a slow burn. He wanted to push forward, and the other people wanted to learn and decide on the best course of action, which was obviously revolution. Yeah, so both sides wanted revolution, but, you know, just in different ways. You know, one... Guys, we're all communists. Why can't we all be friends? Because I want an explosion of revolution while you want to let it simmer for another 50 years. Like a good borscht. I mean, not for 50 years, but you gotta let that borscht simmer to make it taste good. Oh, stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Okay, back to the Romanovs and not borscht. All right. So now what did this really mean for social democrats? A schism. Now there were two groups, the Mensheviks, the moderates, the wait and see let them learn kind of guys. Lenin and his comrades became known as the very famous Bolsheviks. If you know about the Russian Revolution, that should definitely be a very familiar name to you. If you don't know about the Russian Revolution, we will tell you. That's why we're here. All right, so both groups did want to get rid of the Tsar, you know, just at different paces. That's really all it came down to. And when it came to the mass strikes, they didn't have anything to do with it. Working in the shadows all those years, and when it seemed like time had finally arrived, they weren't the ones driving the workers' strike train. So Lenin was still in Switzerland at this point. And man, was he scared that this opportunity would fizzle out. So off he went, back to Russia, to fan the dwindling flames left behind after the October Manifesto was signed. So now we have pogroms, we've got Lenin, and we also have more angry people since the Russian police were going about arresting members of the Soviets. People were up in arms again, taking to the streets of St. Petersburg, building barricades like they were starring in Les Mis. Lenin wasn't there, though. He was busy running away from the police. But he and his Social Democrat friends did help get the ball rolling. So what did the Tsar of all the Russias do? He sent in the troops. Again. Because Nicholas doesn't learn his lesson. With orders to shoot any and all standing against them. 
So once again, men, women, children were shot down in the streets. One step forward, two steps back. That was Nicholas's reign. December 20th through December 31st, that's how long it took for Nicholas's men to put a stop to the uprising. Russia rang in the new year with more than 1,000 people dead and thousands of wounded citizens. The revolution was over, so Lenin ran away to Finland. So after all of this was said and done, Nicholas settled down and took a step back. If only. So instead, he decided that the people of Russia really had to be taught their place this time. You know, all the other times wasn't good enough. This time, they were going to make it work. You know, then no one would ever think of revolution ever again. Now, anyone who was assumed to have any anti-Tsarist leanings was arrested. Now, around 38,000 people were thrown in prison or expelled from Russia, and about 5,000 were executed. If people said anything considered even remotely not Team Nicholas, they were fired from their jobs. Hell, you probably couldn't even think it without being fired or arrested. And honestly, to make it even worse, as if that shitstorm wasn't bad enough, even workers' kids weren't safe from the cops. Right, out in the countryside, something called the Punitive Expeditions took place. Soldiers went into villages to ensure all the seeds of revolution were completely stamped out. They killed random people, they destroyed property, and left devastation in their wake. Welcome to the Hunger Games before the Hunger Games. Right, between December 1905 and April 1906... Here's some really scary numbers. About 15,000 people were killed as a result of these expeditions. 20,000 were injured, and 45,000 were expelled. And to add fuel to this political maelstorm, a bunch of secret courts were set up all over Russia. Huge thanks to Peter Stolypin for that one, the new prime minister. Now, why the secret courts? To make it easier to convict people of revolution, of course. Don't be silly. And... What was the sentence? Exile, if you were lucky. Then there was prison, physical labor, or execution if you weren't. Around 2,000 people were hanged once convicted. But it got Nicholas the results that he wanted. Fear drove people back from the brink of revolution. Fear put them back in their lives that they've always lived. But they hated him for it and gave him a fun new nickname. As a result, he was Nicky to his family, Bloody Nicholas to his people. So now the Duma could finally be elected. But wait, Nicholas needed a loophole, a way to get around the Duma. This meant creating laws that put his authority above the Duma to keep his autocratic power strong. Thumbs up, guy. He could overrule any laws the Duma wanted to enact and create his own laws when the Duma wasn't in session. Oh, and Nicholas could also get rid of the Duma if he felt like it. So what was the point of the Duma? Um, that they existed. Okay. Yeah. So, to add to that, the Tsar was still the head honcho in charge of the police force, the military, foreign policy, and the daily running of Russia and its government. So, what changes were really made as a result of the rebellion? You know, to follow up on Renee's excellent question. People became more aware of just how much they hated their lives under the Tsar. Um, and the Duma made it seem like they got a really good deal out of this. A really nice illusion. You know, we've got this political body that we elect, and... Um, they sit in chairs. It's like know. watching a rabbit being pulled out of a hat. Yeah. Basically, yeah, that's what it was. So the first Duma convened on May 10th, 1906 at the Winter Palace. Men from all different backgrounds were present, ranging from wealthy aristocrats to workers and peasants. In total, there were 524 men elected to the Duma, 
180 of them were peasants and 25 workers. So who made up the rest? The rich nobles, of course. Fair odds, right? So here's Nicholas's first taste of the mood of his people. When he walked in and up to his throne, quite a few of the Duma deputies didn't do a darn thing. So the nobles were cheering, the deputies were quiet. Didn't even bow. That must have been awkward. So Nicholas's family were there as well, which included his sisters, brother, aunts, uncles, and cousins, all dressed in their best. Talk about a divide and disconnect. Time for a standoff, okay? The Duma wanted all political prisoners released. Only the Tsar could do that, though. They were basically making a stand. Take the Duma's power, eh? Heh, we'll show you. So while the members of the Duma were figuratively shaking their fists at Nicholas, the Tsar was up in arms himself. Showed the people leniency by letting most of them live? Uh, yeah. Allowed the Duma to be created and convene? Check. And now they have the audacity to be pissed about their lack of power? They dared to try to get him to concede? Oh, no, no, no. This would not stand. So he did what only he could do. He got rid of the Duma on July 21st, 1906. The Tsar wanted to get rid of the Duma altogether, but Prime Minister Stalipin told him it would be a bad idea. Remember what happened the first time before the first Duma? And that paper you signed called the October Manifesto? Yeah, let's have an election instead. And a second election there was. The second Duma met actually in February of 1907, but Nicholas didn't like that one any better. They too were trying to get the Tsar to agree to things he really didn't want to do, like getting rid of capital punishment entirely, and taking land away from the nobles to give it to the peasants. I mean, what? Take land from his nobles? No, that's not going to work. Nicholas was thinking, fuck that shit. All right, out with the second Duma. Now we'll have a third, but this time, thanks to Nicholas and Stalipin, votes would be cast differently. The votes would be counted by class, and not in the sense that since there's more peasants, then more peasants would be elected. Nah. Since there were more peasants and workers, they had to put in more votes. So 60,000 votes to elect someone from the peasant class. Landowners only had to cast 230 votes to elect one person. With the third Duma, Nicholas had people in place who were much more Team Nicholas than the first two. And this time it stuck. The third Duma was around for five years after they took up their posts in November 1907. All right, so the time has finally arrived. You're probably sitting there thinking, what the heck? It's taking so long. Why aren't you getting to this dude? And we're here. The man. The myth. The creepy legend. Rasputin! Dude was actually named Grigory Yefimovich, but is known as Grigory Rasputin. Rasputin. <laughs> if you understand that movie reference, we can be friends. <laughs> Renee is sending you virtual high fives right now. So good old Greg was a peasant, toiling away at the farm right outside his village in Siberia, until he just up and left one day. Why? Well, according to him, God showed him a vision. So off he went. 2,000 miles later, all on foot, he ended up at a monastery in Greece. And his wife and four kids? Yeah, he left those behind in the village. It's too much baggage. His vision didn't extend to his family. So after his stint at the monastery, he became known as a staritz, a holy man. One who wandered around blessing and healing people. Rasputin wasn't a looker, by any stretch. If you've seen photos, he looks like a super creep. You know, that's just our opinion. That's how we refer to him. I don't know how anyone else is seeing him, but... I, super creep. Yeah, I don't look at him and go, ooh, hunky Rasputin. No. 
If you haven't seen photos, we have one in our show notes, which are linked up in the episode description. So go take a look at the super creep. Now, some of his contemporaries described him as dirty, stinky, and without manners. Others said, not Rasputin. The man is clean. Dude has baths. He's all good. Whatever his bathing situation was. Frankly, I don't care. It didn't bother the people who believed in his healing powers, and it definitely didn't stop them from seeking him out. So eventually, his reputation preceded him to St. Petersburg, and luckily for him, the Tsar and Tsaritsa were desperate to find help for Alexei and his hemophilia. Nicholas's cousin by marriage, the Grand Duchess Militsa, was the one who introduced Rasputin to the imperial family, and the rest is history. From then on, Rasputin was in and out of Tsarsky Silo, since he could do what the doctors couldn't, make Alexei feel better. One night, when Alexei was unwell, Alexandra had Rasputin come into Alexander Palace. He shut himself up in the kid's room and prayed. Before he left, he told Alexei that he'd be just fine. And you know what? Alexei was. Now, was this a miracle? Was Rasputin a man of God, a true holy man? Mm. Rasputin's eyes were famed for being hypnotic. So... Did this dude help Alexei calm down enough so his body could start fixing itself? Put him in a trance? Power suggestion? You'll be fine because I say so and now you believe in it sort of thing? No one knows. Rasputin's effect on Alexei wasn't done through medical means by any stretch, so it still remains a mystery to all of us. Some people figured he just arrived at the right moment, around the time when Alexei's episode, for lack of a better word, was about to end. Regardless, Alexandra was over the moon. She totally believed that Rasputin was a miracle worker, a holy man sent by God. At this point, no one was really raising any eyebrows at Rasputin. He was liked, respected, and endorsed by members of the church. This was one respectable holy man. In August 1909, the imperial family headed to England for some diplomacy and family time. It was both the Grand Duchess's first official royal visit and their last. So after stopping to visit Alexandra's sister Irene and a three-day stopover in France, the Romanovs finally arrived off the coast of England on their ship, the Standard. Since Bloody Sunday and the events that happened after, Britain had become a less friendly place to the Russian royal family. Some people were pissed about his visit, you know, hoping he would be killed if he came to England. That's, you know, the guy's not even in charge of a country, but if you hate him that much, I don't know, it seems like it takes up a lot of time to hate someone from far away, but okay. So, so, you know, what was the solution? Nicholas wouldn't come on land. The family would stay on their ship, surrounded by protection and the Russian cruisers and destroyers that accompanied them on their trip. Safe as houses. On this visit, Prince Edward, the future King Edward VIII, got to meet all of his Russian cousins, all except Olga, of course, whom he'd met before. This time, Olga was much more grown up than the last time he saw her, you know, considering she was, what, like, one? The first time they met? Was she even one yet? I don't think she was even one. I think, but remember, he, like, taught her how to walk and stuff? I think she was, like, eight or nine months. So, yeah, so Olga wasn't even a a year old at this point. So, you know, definitely quite a difference. The only time the Russian and British royal families didn't eat together was breakfast. All other meals were had as one big happy family. Now, Prince Albert, the future George VI, wasn't actually allowed to spend most of the trip with the family since he had whooping cough. Big no-no in case he got Alexei sick. All that aside, it was a really lovely trip for the kids. Not only did they get to see England, a favorite and fond place for Alexandra, but they got to explore, meet their cousins, and most importantly, 
They had a shit ton of fun. That's all kids want. Royal, not royal. All you want to do is enjoy yourself and have fun. So they got to futz about on the beach and build sand castles, play in the water. And then Olga and Tatiana were able to go ashore for some shopping. Not alone, of course. There were more than enough people keeping watch, including a bunch of detectives. But it was still such a freeing experience for them. What makes their visit so innocent and memorable is that it was so normal. Okay, sure, they were surrounded by guardians, but they went from shop to shop, chatting with owners in English. Instead of expensive, lavish items, they bought country pennants and royal postcard photos of family members, including Nicholas and Alexandra. And everyone adored them. I mean, how could you not? They thought they were so kind. In all honesty, people thought all five of the Imperial kids were an absolute delight. The visit went well, and the families had a really wonderful time together. Remember, George V, still a prince at this point, and Nicholas weren't just cousins. They were friends. And so the Romanovs returned to Russia. And this was the last time the British family saw their Romanov family members in person. Alright, so the Imperial family was pretty regular when it came to which palace they spent their time in. And like clockwork, they would move depending on the time of year. In March, they moved to the Crimea. Then on to Peterhof in May, a lovely cruise near Finland in June, their hunting lodge in Poland come August, back to the Crimea in September, and then settling back in Adzarskay Silo in November. I wish we had that many houses to choose from. I don't know. I think it'd be difficult keeping track where I want to go. Okay. I wish we had one other house to go to. But fine. I'll take the one house. (laughs) It's more than some people have. This is true. This is true. Nicholas and his family would take the Imperial family train as they traveled from place to place. Right? And this train was basically a moving palace. Not surprising for the richest royal in the world. There were actually two identical trains to throw revolutionaries off, with two trains traveling on the same day around the same time, only a few miles apart. It was a guessing game. Which train was the right one to destroy? Potential death aside, their yearly trips were pretty enjoyable. The family absolutely loved their cruises, okay, traveling on a ship named the Standard. This was another little traveling palace built for the Imperial family. So why did the Imperial family love it on their yacht so much? Because they lived very different lives there than in any other palace or even on their train. You know, things were way more laid back on the ship and they could point out almost every sailor, you know, first name and all. The Grand Duchesses flourished on the ship, okay, chatting with as many of the sailors as they could, making friends, well, you know, as much as four princesses could. And there was even flirting, especially when they became older. So life was a lot simpler during this time, but, you know, Nicholas was still the czar, so that meant he still had czar things to do, but he worked less often, only two days while cruising around so he could kick back and spend time with his family. He liked to head over to the Finnish shore a bit, either alone or with his children for some nature exploration. On the other hand, Alexandra almost never left the ship since her sciatica was usually bothering her, but she did take the time to relax and do the things she liked, you know, like playing the piano and knitting. Um... You know, after their trip to England, Nicholas and company headed to the Crimea, staying at the Livadia Palace. Their cousin, Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, age 18, 
came for a visit with them, which is good because he and Nicholas spent a lot of bro time together, walking and chatting, but he also did spend time with his younger cousins as well. Um, Dimitri was a favorite for everyone. He was actually, you know, the Imperial Kid's favorite cousin. So unsurprisingly, again, Alexandra spent most of her time in her room away from the family since she didn't feel well. To add to the family woes with Alexandra's health, Alexei had another bout with his hemophilia when he hurt his leg. As a result, the Romanovs were still at Lavadia when December rolled in. Nicholas and Alexandra liked to spend time together in her sitting room. And if you thought their cuteness toward each other ended with marriage and children, definitely not. She always called him Nicky, while he would call her Alex, Sunshine, or Sunny. Ironic, considering how much pain she was in throughout her life. Casting a little medical gloom on the family. Unintentional, but there it is. Here's a weird fact. Nicholas would basically call his family to him by giving off a whistle that sounded like a bird. When wifey and kids heard the sound, off they went. Granted, they didn't have intercoms or walkie-talkies or an echo dot, but still, odd way to gather the family together. Whatever works. All of that aside, it's time for a Royal Grand Duchess and Zadovich roll call. We've mentioned them a lot. Now, let's get to know the kids a bit. First, we have Olga Nikolaevna, the eldest, the firstborn, and the kid with Nicholas's personality. She was kind to others, reserved, and intelligent. Like Nicholas, she was a voracious reader, which meant she was sometimes pilfering books from Alexandra before she could even read them. Funny story. Olga's French tutor told her to underline any French word she didn't understand in Les Mis. One of her selections? Merde. Since she didn't see her French tutor, she asked dear Papa what it meant during dinner one night. Her tutor almost fell over when Nicholas brought it up the next day. Poor Pierre. No worries, though. Nicholas wasn't mad. He even smiled. And for those of you who did not take French or look up French naughty words, merde means shit in French. Probably not the thing Nicholas wanted his daughters to be learning. Next is Tatiana Nikolaevna, the second eldest. To start, she spent the most time with Alexandra, clucking over her and looking after her. She was much more outgoing than Olga and quite the opinionated young woman. Weird to say, but she was more talented than Olga, you know, at things like piano and such. But like her mother, she was the more socially anxious of the two. Out of all the children, Tatiana was the one in charge, which earned her the nickname The Governess. She and Olga, regardless of their differences, were best friends. Now we have Maria Nikolaevna. Per the books we read, she was the most lovely-looking of all her sisters. She was a very open young lady, kind and full of joy. Everyone lovingly called her Mashka. And one of her favorite topics was getting married and having kids of her own. Last, but certainly not least, of the four daughters is Little Miss Mischief herself, Anastasia Nikolaevna. This is the daughter everyone knows the name of. She was clever, stubborn, and full of life. She was the jokester of the family, always keeping those around her laughing. And while she wore the pretty dresses, she was totally a tomboy. Climbing trees and running around, she wouldn't come down from a tree she climbed until Nicholas told her to. Now, regardless of their ages and the fact that the oldest two were the big pair and the youngest the little pair, all four sisters were incredibly close. They did almost everything together. Part of that is due to the fact that they didn't have any other friends, really. You know, it's hard when they're closeted away in the palace and, you know, it's and they're princesses. So 
you know, they're not going to go to school, make friends like we did. Uh, so they had to be friends with each other. But they also had a natural affinity and love for one another. When they signed things together, like cards or letters, they signed as Otma, O-T-M-A, which comes from the first letter of each of their names. And that's really cute, but also really sad. Like everyone else, they began lumping themselves together as one entity. Was it on purpose or just a byproduct? Who knows? The girls weren't spoiled due to their upbringing. They weren't bratty. They didn't treat people considered below them as less than. None of that. When the maids came in to clean their rooms, they helped. If they were sent to fetch someone, it was always couched as a request, not a demand. Yeah, like, you know, if, you, if you've if got a moment, can you please come, you know, my mom is looking for you. You know, nice, easy, polite. And in the palaces, there were no royal titles being thrown about, only their names. So it made them really uncomfortable to be called on by their full royal titles at public events. Since they didn't have a lot of access to the outside world, they played with the servants' children, and they were always asking questions. I mean, wouldn't you when your world is so small? Always curious about everything outside the palace. If you were cooped up with your family all day long, much as you love them, wouldn't you want to know anything and everything about all the things you've always heard about? Think of fairy tale princesses locked away from the world. Except this was real life. And it wasn't even for their own safety. They lived sheltered, hideaway lives because of Alexei's condition. And they never blamed him for it. So they read and played and learned all the names of the soldiers that were always around them. These soldiers were their constant companions. You know, they saw them on the daily. They got to know them and their lives. Now, as the girls grew older, more so Olga and Tatiana, since Maria and Anastasia were still too young, they started playing their part in public, appearing at more official functions and going to the theater with their dear papa. Now, Olga started putting her money towards charities, her genuine kindness and caring at work. There was a story that we read where, you know, they were driving by in the carriage or the car, I'm not sure, but they were passing this boy who was on crutches. And she asked, you know, what's going on there? Why is he on crutches? Why are they having such a difficult time? And, you know, they told her that um, they can't pay the medical bills. So quietly, without being asked, without being told, she started paying for those bills so that they could get the boy help. And that's who Olga was. All the Romanov kids shared tutors who taught them literature, religion, some math, and different languages like Russian, English, German, and French. Sidney Gibbs was their English teacher, and he would be in their lives until 1917, an ominous year. And speaking of languages, they spoke a few at home. English was the one used between mom, dad, and kids. The kids spoke Russian with Nicholas, other family members, and Russian speakers. Alexandra didn't speak Russian very well, so she didn't speak the language. Funny thing is, they never did learn to read and write in English like native speakers, even though they could speak it fluently. And French... Apparently, their French wasn't anything to envy. So even though the girls were smart and talented in different ways, it would seem they weren't the best students. Like some of the kids of today, they were not fans of school. So let's break it down. Olga was quick to pick things up during lessons. Quite a bright girl. Tatiana enjoyed playing the piano and painting. Both paid attention during their lessons, even though they weren't having a blast during them. But, you know, at least they were learning. Maria didn't really put that much stock in her lessons and wished she was outside instead. And she was also a painting fan, apparently strong like an ox. She used to pick up her tutors after hugging them around their waist. And Anastasia? Oh my god, she hated school. 
And she wasn't the best student. At all. When she didn't get a good grade in English, she told Gibbs she would throw ink on his shirt. When he didn't change her grade at that threat, she stomped out and came back with flowers and a warm smile to change his mind. Still no. And then there's Alexei. The little Zarvich was, naturally, beloved by his family. Nicholas and Alexandra called him Dear One, Wee One, and Sunbeam. He got a lot of attention, okay, a lot, for a few different reasons. He was the baby, he was a long-hoped-for boy, and, unfortunately, he was also the sick one. But his sisters never resented him. They loved him just as much as they loved each other. Even with the threat of his hemophilia hanging over him, Alexei was such a happy kid, laughing, playing, or wanting to play when he couldn't, and playing pranks. He and Anastasia could have competed against one another in the mischief department. All right, so Adrian and I absolutely love this story. Love this story. <laughs> okay, so one night during dinner, Alexei stole a slipper off a woman's foot, a guest of the family. He was five at the time. He thought it was awesome. He even showed the shoe to Nicholas. Dad was not laughing. He told Alexei to put it back on the woman's foot. And we need to know what the hell was running through her head. But he did. He put it back. With the strawberry stuffed inside it? <laughs> so the lady let out a yell when her shoe was put on. Alexei was laughing. What fun! This is awesome! Look at that thing I did. And then there's Nicholas, and he was pissed. Oh my god. He exiled Alexei from the dining room for weeks as a result. And our question is this. Was Nicholas kind of sort of laughing on the inside? Like, I need to know. It, out of all my burning questions, I think that's my biggest one. Was he, like, holding it in, bottling it in? Or was he, like, genuinely, like, what is wrong with my kid? And why is he doing this thing? Number one, why are you removing shoes off of people's feet? Number two, why are you putting fruit inside of it before putting them back on? Number three, why didn't you just give the shoe back to the woman instead of putting it on her foot? See, I have a theory that this is how Russian roulette became a thing. So at this dining table? Yeah, because the way it's phrased, like, in the research we've done, where it's, like, basically Alexei was a troublemaker. So that, like, guests were relieved when he wouldn't be back in the dining room for several weeks. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate for them that he wasn't completely exiled forever. Yeah, so, you know, you have all these people, and then you just look over and you see someone's face change. And I'm sure part of it is, wait, what happened? Oh... It's the fucking Zarevich. Oh, got it. Glad it's not me. Right? So, that's my theory. Yeah. Well, I mean, even though Nicholas was a disciplinarian, Alexei got away with so much shit. He basically got what he wanted when he wanted it. Um, we wouldn't call him a brat, though. Okay? He could be bratty, but he wasn't a brat. There's a difference. The heartbreaking thing about Alexei is that what he wanted the most was to roll around outside and climb trees. Like Anastasia. Like other boys his age. But Alexei could never be like those boys because a fall or tumble or cut could mean his death. He wanted a bicycle so badly but wasn't allowed one, which meant that Alexei usually tested limits. Um, so, you know, Alexei once borrowed a bicycle from one of the gardeners when no one was looking and zoomed off. Nicholas, who was outside reviewing the palace guard, almost fell over. In the middle of saluting, he stopped and ordered all the soldiers to get Alexei off that bike. You know, obviously carefully, surround him, get him off it gently. Now, it took them a while, but they finally did it. 
Um, Nicholas probably almost died of shock and fear when he saw his son on that bike. I just want to know what that facial expression looked like when he was in mid-salute and caught sight of Alexi. But, alas, fortunately no one caught it on camera. Yeah, no, it's just like one of those moments where if Alexi had been a normal kid without hemophilia, it, it would be one of those hysterical moments that you're just kind of like, what is my son doing? What is he doing? Right. I can't with him right now. But this really was life or death with him. And I, I can't imagine, like, Nicholas's... Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure his heart stopped. I'm sure the breath caught. Like, I'm I'm sure he just literally died for a second. Yeah. I mean, like, we can laugh about it now because, A, we're so removed, and B, like, nothing happened to him. He ended up okay. So, you know, we can have a good laugh at Nicholas's expense. But um, for Nicholas, that was, you know, probably aged him a bit. All right. So we mentioned earlier he could be a bit bratty. When he was six years old, he barged into Nicholas's office when his dad was in a meeting. When this man had the gall to just stay seated, Alexei yelled at him. When the heir to the Russian throne enters a room, people must get up. Luckily, this wasn't an everyday thing, and Alexei was, all things considered, a pretty good kid. He kind of had the terrible twos a little later than two. At one point, Nicholas was calling him Alexei the Terrible. Probably out of love, but it gives you a pretty good idea of his snot factor during this brief time. The older he got, the more he mellowed and the more empathetic he became. So if the kids were a musical group, like the Backstreet Boys or Spice Girls, they'd be an order from the eldest, the shy one, the bossy one, the happy one, the mischievous one, and the other mischievous one. Eventually, Alexandra Nicholas had to explain Alexei's hemophilia to him. How do you do that? How do you tell a kid who only wants to be like everyone else that he can't be, that he's different and has to be so careful and can't get scratched or bruised? That must have been so hard for them to do and so hard for him to hear. You know, no roughhousing, no sports, no running, no anything that could end with his life in danger. At one point, he even asked, why couldn't he be like all the other boys? But as we know, he still did the things he wasn't supposed to do. Can you blame him? Alexei had a Cossack uniform he liked to wear, complete with a furry hat. But the uniform he was photographed the most in was his sailor naval uniform. Alexei spent most of his time with his sisters and his pets, though he did get to play with Derevenko's boys now and then. Derevenko being one of his sailor nannies, of course. So he kept a sharp eye on them. Like all excellent younger siblings, unless you're Renee. Screw you. Shh. Alexei actually listened to his sisters. At the same time, he took precedence over his sisters when they were out in public, and he knew it. Ironically, it was Olga, not Miss Bossy Tatiana, who was in charge of Alexei when they were out and about. It somehow became her job to keep an eye on him and make sure he was behaving. There was a menagerie of animals at Tsarskaya Silo, with dogs, a cat, an elephant, yes, an elephant, two llamas, a donkey, if there's an elephant, is the donkey that surprising, and a parrot. And the parrot lived... In Nicholas's bathroom. So we love that, of all the places. The one thing the entire family loved was taking photos. You know, this was their shared hobby. They took their little Kodak brownie cameras with them everywhere they went and took pictures of each other and the things around them. You know, they each had their own camera. So Anastasia even tried taking a photo of herself, the first selfie. There were so many albums chock full of their photos, and sometimes they scrapbooked. Okay, not literally, but they spent time putting the photos into the albums themselves. Routine and the outdoors were important to the family. 
At 11 a.m. every single day, Nicholas went for a walk with his kids, and in the wintertime, they liked to create huge snow mountains to sled down. Here's a bit of a contradiction when it comes to Nicholas and his dealing with his subjects. So we have an image of bloody Nicholas, right? Serves them right, teach them a lesson guy. Then we also have Mr. Goes Riding Through Villages on his horse storing his countryside John Sky. He would actually chat with the peasants who lived in those villages. And when he was handed petitions by his peasants or they asked him for things, he made sure that the things that they asked for became a real thing. Quite a different czar from Bloody Nicholas, right? So how does this disconnect happen? Is it compartmentalization? These peasants are okay. It's the workers and the other people in St. Petersburg. We'll admit, it's a little bit weird. The Romanovs spent very little time at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. As we know from our previous episodes, it was their least favorite place. Too much hustle, too much bustle, and too exposed. After all her pregnancies, Alexandra spent a lot of time away from her family. Not really by choice, but because she was sick. A lot. Her own issues, plus stress over Alexei's condition, left her pretty run down. The girls would write notes to her, wishing her well and telling her how much they missed seeing her. You know, sometimes they asked for advice, or in Anastasia's case, shared details of their day. Anastasia once wrote that she spent some time in the bathroom picking her toe. An important tidbit to share with mom, to be sure. Now, Alexandra did write back. She suffered. Oh, how she suffered. And the girls would just have to have a stiff upper lip and bear it. If they behaved themselves and were good, then it'd make the situation better for everyone. Now, she wasn't talking down to them. It was just kind of like, guys, I'm sorry, I don't feel well. You know, just be good and make sure you listen. And, you know, it's just gonna make life easier. Now, by 1910, even though the girls did love each other, a natural distance started opening up between the two eldest and the two youngest. Not really growing apart, but growing up. Interests changed, age came between them a bit. Maria, who was more sensitive, noticed. And she didn't like it one bit. So we mentioned in our last episode that Alexei's hemophilia hit Alexandra hard. She blamed herself, but more than that, watching her son suffer killed something inside of her. There was nothing Alexandra could do to help her son. When he woke up and complained that his joints weren't working right or he couldn't walk, all she could do was sit by Alexei's bedside and hold his hand. To comfort herself, she prayed. God was her refuge. When she believed that God had turned his back on her, she was thankful Rasputin walked into her life. You know, the mystic had, must have been sent by God to help them, but Rasputin could only do so much. While he helped Alexei, that didn't stop Alexandra from wearing herself thin when her son wasn't feeling well. She wouldn't leave his side, not for anything. When Alexei was feeling better, that's when Alexandra would finally fall off her feet. She'd be weak, understandably, and as a result, she would have to use a wheelchair if she wished to get around when she wasn't stuck in bed recuperating. Like, this woman was completely falling apart at this point. Imagine being the mother of a hemophiliac in this time period. There is no treatment. You're constantly worrying that your child will bump into a desk or fall off a chair or slip and fall while running, etc. It would take untold on anyone's health. And that's what happened to Alexandra. By 1908, Alexandra was complaining of shortness of breath. She believed that she had an enlarged heart. She struggled to breathe, and there is an account that her lips turned blue at one point. Dr. Botkin saw her every single day, twice a day, to monitor her heart. Without getting into the nitty-gritty of her diagnosis, basically, he came to the conclusion that Alexei's condition had a greater effect 
on Alexandra than just physical exhaustion. Her worry led to bouts of anxiety attacks, which is why she sometimes had trouble breathing. Alexei's health and her own medical struggles had a rather unintended effect on how Alexandra was seen when she attended court, which, if we're honest, really wasn't all that often. She usually kept to herself and away from court life, but when she did make an appearance, she didn't really look happy. She looked sad. Her body was there, but her mind was far away. She came off cold. She wasn't liked to begin with, so unintentional as it was, it wasn't helping her public image in the slightest. Rasputin, this so-called man of God, had a habit of wandering around the children's apartments after their prayers were said and the girls were in their nightclothes. Super creep. Now, let us underline, okay, super creepiness aside, that there is no evidence whatsoever that Rasputin behaved inappropriately with the girls. There were always people about, but, you know, whether or not Alexandra wanted to listen to the rumors surrounding Rasputin regarding his sexual and grotesque nature, he was not someone who should be around children. Just his proximity alone to the girls could ruin them. So the governess Tucheva was so not okay with his presence. Had she had the authority to drag him out of the palace herself, she would have. Instead, she settled for trying to get Rasputin banned. This obviously didn't go over so well with Alexandria. I mean, what was Tucheva thinking? Rasputin was a holy man. He could never do anything so vile. How dare Tucheva demand such a thing and try to do the one thing she was hired to do, protect her charges. Shame on that woman. Nicholas did end up stepping in and made sure Rasputin knew to stay away from his daughter's rooms. If you think that was the end of it, you'd be wrong. Tucheva was fired not long after. There's gratitude for you. Alexandra was not kind to those who opposed her dear friend. When Tucheva returned to Moscow, she practically begged Ella to speak some sense into her sister. I imagine if Ella was living in our time, her response would have sounded something like, you know, hell yeah, I'm going to fucking talk to her. Needless to say, Ella was not a fan of Rasputin. She tried approaching Alexandra gently, then with anger, then gently again, and then repeated the cycle. It became such a sore spot between the two that these once close sisters grew further and further apart until one day, there really wasn't a relationship between them at all. So what was Rasputin doing when he wasn't near Alexandra and playing the part of the holy man? Well, there would be noble women who went to his apartment, likely looking for guidance of some sort. Personally, I think they should have just gone to a church. Or a back alley where there was some peddler, sitting with a crystal ball with an offer to tell their future. But hey, that's just me. But back to these women. They would come to his apartment and fawn over him. But that soon changed. Rasputin was bold. Audaciously so. He had no problem pulling women into his lap without their permission and making a move. Touching, kissing, and who knows what else. Okay, fuck towing the line between proper and improper, he stepped over that line and took a few lunges forward. And as a result, by 1911, Rasputin was persona non grata in high society. He was finally getting what he fucking deserved. But still, Nicholas and Alexandra didn't believe the rumors. Even when Rasputin tried to rape a nun, okay, yeah, you heard that right, he tried to rape a nun. He even confessed to his friend, a monk named Ilyador, and Bishop Hermogen of Saratov. They beat him and forced Rasputin to promise that he'd stay away from women and the Russian royals. Hmm, but let's be honest, that wasn't going to stop him. In fact, he strolled back into the palace a couple days later and started telling people how he was accused of such a heinous crime and beaten for it. He was an innocent little flower. 
the bishop and Iliodor were pretty much sent to the farthest corners of the country, where there was no life there for them to interact with. Iliodor, though, flipped the imperial family the middle finger and made his way across the country telling people about Rasputin's true character. Prime Minister Stolipin wasn't pleased. Here was Rasputin, running around doing who knows what, making all sorts of trouble, and Stolipin decided it was about time he looked into him. Long overdue, but at least someone was finally doing it. He made sure there were always eyes on him. The PM had Rasputin followed and the police interviewed anyone he crossed paths with. I'd love to know how that looked, but all I can picture is Tom, from Tom and Jerry, of course, der, the original, tiptoeing behind Jerry everywhere he goes. All the reports that were given to Stolipin in February 1911, none of them survived. Which is a shame, for so many reasons. All we have are rumors of the information collected. There might have been proof of his revolting behavior towards and around women, but we can't know for sure. Whatever was in there was enough to make Salipin run quick like a bunny to the czar. But Nicholas wasn't buying any of it, as if this comes as a surprise. This has been his pattern of behavior so far. His way of thinking was pretty much that Rasputin was his friend and everyone can butt out. He was of the mistaken opinion that his so-called friendship with Rasputin didn't affect the people of Russia or how the government was run, or, most importantly, the image and reputation of the imperial family. His solution to the problem was for Stolipin to meet with Rasputin. Once in the same room, they'd most definitely become friends, right? Big no on that front. During the meeting, Stolipin told Rasputin he either had to deal with the accusations that were being brought against him or get out of the city. And like the grown-up child he is, Rasputin hurried to Alexandra to whine and complain. Alexandra had Nicholas's ear, and often when she complained about things, Nicholas would listen. So, Stolipin zoomed on over to Nicholas. Rasputin can't be trusted, he said. He needs to leave. And Nicholas was like, nope, not gonna lift a finger. Which is infuriating. So, Stolipin did the only thing he could. As Prime Minister, he kicked Rasputin out of the city. Bye-bye, Rasputin. Pack your things and get out of St. Petersburg. And boy, was Alexandra pissed. She cried and complained about how unfair it all was. Rasputin was their friend. Nicholas had to do something to protect him, right? No. In this instance, Nicholas made the right move. He refused to overrule his PM's decision. What he did do, however, was tell Rasputin that this was an opportunity to go on a pilgrimage. Nicholas even offered to pay for it. He figured that by the time Rasputin came back the following June, all the trouble and rumors surrounding him would be a thing of the past. Fast forward a few months to September of 1911, and things were about to get a whole lot worse. Everyone, the family, as well as some officials, went to Kiev. The only reason Nicholas and his family went was because it was for a statue created in honor of Tsar Alexander II, Nicholas's grandfather. At this point, Nicholas was barely seen by the masses since the 1905 revolution. If he did go out in public, he was always surrounded by his guards, so it really shouldn't come as any surprise that none of the Russian people eagerly awaiting a glimpse of the Tsar were able to see a thing. Nothing. It went from, the Tsar is coming, the Tsar is coming, to, the Tsar's guards are coming, the Tsar's guards are coming, and the Tsar is somewhere in the middle? Probably, we can't know for sure, but that's what we're supposed to believe. The night after the statue unveiling, Nicholas went to the opera with Olga and Tatiana, who were attending in place of Alexandra. Now, all was going well, the girls were enjoying themselves, and then, during the second intermission, shit hit the fan. 
Tatiana was alone in the Imperial box, Nicholas and Olga having stepped out for a cuppa, when a lunatic with a gun showed up. No, he wasn't aiming at Tatiana. But the sweet girl tried to ban her father from coming back in when the man started shooting. She slammed the door. Okay, here was the Grand Duchess, only 14 years old, and trying to protect the Tsar. Was leaning against it, telling him not to come back in. Too bad for her. She was smaller and weaker than her dad. Um, I also find it interesting that gunshots go off. Most people's immediate reaction is to duck and cover. Hers was to bar the door to keep her dad and sister from coming back into the box. But Nicholas and Olga burst into the box, and when the three of them looked over the railing, they saw Prime Minister Stalipin, his uniform covered in blood. Stalipin saw Nicholas and made the sign of the cross before collapsing. The shooter was caught immediately. Nicholas, in an attempt to calm the people in the chaos in the theater... You know, he waved, he showed everyone he was alive and well, no bullet holes whatsoever, nothing. However, Stalipin died five days later. Now, here's where things get a little interesting. Alexandra, the pious woman that she apparently is, kind of reveled in Stalipin's death. Not in a morbid throwing a party kind of way, but more like someone who's smug and has been waiting to tell someone, I told you so. In her eyes, Stalipin had offended her friend when he banished Rasputin from St. Petersburg, keeping the Staryets away from her and her family. When Stalipin died, she viewed it as cosmic justice. According to the family Romanoff by Candace Fleming, her exact words were, Those who offend our friend may no longer count on divine protection. Wow. Okay then. Let's talk about the shooter for a second. His name was Dmitry Bogrov. What were his motivations for running into a theater and shooting the PM? We have no idea. He was executed before anyone could get any answers. But. But. He was a Jew. This matters because once this got out, Jews all over Kiev started packing their shit and trying to find a way out of the city. They were terrified people would come after them because of what Bogrov did. Remember those pogroms we mentioned earlier? The Jewish populace was getting ready for another one. While they were all waiting for the trains to come the next day, as most of them were packing all night ready to flee, Vladimir Kokostev, who was the Minister of Finance, brought in the guards to protect the Jewish people and stop any violence. He was not having it. Someone had even made a comment to him that Kokostev had missed the perfect opportunity to create another pogrom. It would have only been fair in the man's opinion. A Jew killed the PM. The Russian people should hit back against the entire Jewish population. Makes sense, right? Kukoshev had even reached out to other city leaders to ensure that no pogroms were established. Nicholas had supported this decision, and soon after, Kukoshev was sworn in as the new PM. And here again, we have Nicholas the Contradiction. The 1905 pogroms, he was a fan. The pogroms before then also, but this time, he didn't blame the Jews. He wanted the population left unharmed. Just exactly who was this man? Did he even know? The answer is no. Okay, so while Rasputin was waiting for his banishment to be over so he could come back to St. Petersburg, some of the letters written to Rasputin from the imperial family started being consumed by public eyes. So the most important ones were the letters Alexandra wrote to Rasputin and to anyone who read them. It was damning proof, of course, that their Zaritsa was having an affair with Rasputin. That's charming, yeah. Ew. Bearded. Ew. Fellow. Anyway, so Alexandra wrote about loving him, wanting to kiss him, etc. Out of context, yeah, it definitely looked really bad. But this wasn't 
anything different than how she usually wrote to family and friends. It was just the way she communicated with others in her letters. Um, you know, but the public couldn't know this, and so the rumors spread. Now, it's funny because if you ever see letters written with, you know, from the Grand Duchesses or other women of the time, even men, the letters are quite uh, flowery, flowery, yeah, in nature. So it, it's not like, man, she was really having sexy time with Rasputin and whew, putting it all down on paper. It's just. The way she wrote, it's the way her girls wrote, too. Darling, sweetheart. Those those words were all, you know, just used by a lot of people at the time. Anyway, Nicholas was ready to explode. I would be, too. I'm with him on this. He wanted those letters found, pronto, and eventually they were. Now, Alexandra wasn't just pissed off. She felt betrayed. Rasputin was supposed to hold on to those letters. They weren't for anyone's eyes but his own. But... Wanting to show off that he and the Imperial family were now bosom buddies, he gave the letters to someone he considered a friend. Rasputin realized he'd made a huge oopsie and hurried back to St. Petersburg. Nicholas and Alexandra completely ignored him. Served him right. For the first time, Rasputin was feeling the brunt of the Imperial family's anger. No longer were they jumping to his defense, and this made him desperate. He couldn't lose their support, so he tried anything and everything to get back on their good side, even going so far as to hide on the Imperial train. Why he thought this was a good idea, I don't know. When Nicholas found out, he made sure Rasputin and all his baggage was thrown off the train when it was stopped. I think I would have just thrown him off when the train was moving, but, you know, personal preference aside. No matter what he did, Nicholas and Alexandra refused to listen to him. So he tucked tail and went on home to his village, waiting for the opportune moment to pop back up again. If only he'd stayed gone. Okay, so in August 1912, the Romanovs went on vacation to Poland. They traveled between a couple of their homes, because who doesn't have a few homes in a few different countries? At Bielowieza, Alexei was given permission to go rowing after much begging. Unfortunately, Alexei didn't take his time getting into the boat and hurt himself, bruising his upper thigh. He was stuck in bed for a few days, but really that was all. The bruise went away and Alexei was back to being his usual, dangerously rambunctious self. Bad things happened, though, when the family continued their vacation at their home in Spala a couple weeks later. Alexandra went on a lovely carriage ride with Alexei, or rather, it started that way. After a couple of miles, Alexei screamed. All of a sudden, he was in a tremendous amount of pain. His back and his stomach were killing him. Obviously, taking absolutely no chances, Alexandra had the driver take them home. Since the pain was so bad, he was totally out of it by the time they got back. Dr. Bakken, who was traveling with the family, was able to figure out what was wrong. Alexei was experiencing the aftereffects of his fall on the rowboat. While the family thought the bruise had healed, what had really happened was that the injury caused blood to pool in the leg, groin, and then stomach. As a result, Alexei's leg folded in on his stomach and there was nothing the poor kid could do to prevent it. And there was nothing Dr. Botkin or the other doctors could do for him either. The internal bleeding would continue until his body formed the clots necessary for it to stop or, and it's really awful to say, Alexei would die. Those were really the only two options. If the doctors couldn't do anything, then Alexandra sure as hell couldn't. For 11 days, she barely left him alone. Alexei screamed and cried without end, and Alexandra barely slept. She sat by his side the entire time, and we do mean the entire 
time. She had to listen to not only Alexei's crying, but also his heartbreaking questions like, Mama, why won't you help me? But that's not all. His questions got worse. At one point, everyone was sure Alexei was going to die. Even Alexei himself. He'd say something like, When I'm dead, the pain will end, right? Or he'd say something like, When I die, build me a monument. Okay, didn't need my heart or anything. Rip it right out, why don't you? It's no wonder Alexandra's hair started graying at this point. There's nothing more heartbreaking than a child who's ready for the end to finally come. Nicholas had to go hunting at this time. He couldn't stay inside. And the girls also kept to their schedules, you know, making sure to spend time outside as well, taking walks or playing tennis. The outside world, on the other hand, was freaking out. Let's remember that they don't know about Alexei's condition. It's all a secret. But the public wasn't stupid. They knew something was up, and so stories started to swirl. All of them ridiculous, of course. Someone from the London Daily Mail decided to write an article claiming that Alexei had survived an assassination attempt but was injured by a bomb. Um, I don't know where you pulled any of those details, but all right. When Nicholas was told that Alexei might not survive, he finally gave his permission for medical bulletins to be posted about Alexei being ill. But it had to be carefully worded. There would be nothing in the bulletins that would disclose the cause of Alexei's condition. As would be expected, the people of the Russian Empire rallied. They prayed for the Tsarevich. There were several close calls, moments when they were sure Alexei would pass away. The family waited for what they believed to be the inevitable, but Alexandra was the only one who was sure Alexei would make it through. He was struggling, yes. He nearly died a few times, absolutely, but she refused to believe that her baby boy wouldn't make it. In her most desperate moment, Alexandra reached out to Rasputin. He had helped Alexei in the past. Perhaps he could do the same again. Um, you know, Rasputin received her telegram and responded, The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. And, you know, that's a quote we pulled from Nicholas and Alexandra by Robert K. Massey. So just as quickly as it started, Alexei was on the mend. Within a day of getting the telegram from Rasputin, the bleeding stopped. The doctors didn't know why or how it happened. But it did. Alexandra believed that Rasputin was the reason. A man of God, supposedly. He had prayed for her son, spoke to God, and healed Alexei. All of her anger with him vanished. She forgave him instantly for sharing her personal letters. Alexei was alive and well, and Rasputin was the reason. He was back in her good graces for good this time. Nothing anyone said or did would change her mind. Now, to this day, doctors aren't entirely sure why the bleeding stopped, but there are some theories. The first is that after Rasputin sent the telegram, the doctor stopped poking and prodding Alexei, allowing his body to form a clot. So, basically, having his body jostled so often would have destroyed any blood clot that was forming. But once he was left alone, his body did what it had to do in order to heal. The second theory has to do with stress and its effect on bleeding. Basically, with the people around Alexei freaking out, such as his mother and the doctors, he picked up on all of those emotions. This caused his blood to flow faster. There's no way a blood clot could form that way, but when Rasputin contacted Alexandra, assuring her that Alexei would be okay, that calmed her down. And so when Alexandra was around Alexei, the boy picked up on that and also calmed down. So as a result, his blood flow slowed, which allowed the body time to form a clot. Interesting theory. Alexei's doctors posted a medical bulletin that skirted around hemophilia, but never outright said that the kid was suffering from it. If the doctors had, the Russian people would have flown into a panic. 
Their heir? A hemophiliac? Say it isn't so. So the doctors mentioned Alexei had a fever, bleeding, swelling, and now that he was on the up and up, he would need more time to heal since his leg was stuck in a bent position. What was unexpected was that it would take about a year for his leg to heal and for Alexei to be able to straighten the limb. Until then, he couldn't walk at all. Since the bulletin didn't answer any questions, people's imaginations went wild, as they usually do. You name it, people probably speculated about it. Tuberculosis, he was stabbed, kidney issues, on and on and on. So many theories, not enough time. So finally, on November 4th, 1912, someone from St. Petersburg working for the Times wrote in an article, In medical circles, the illness of the Tsarevich is attributed to a congenital condition of the blood, rendering reabsorption difficult in the case of a rupture of the slightest vessel. And we actually pulled this from the Romanov sisters from or rather by, Helen Rappaport. Basically, what this quote said was that Alexei had hemophilia. And that is exactly what Hospital, the British Medical Journal, published on November 9th. Now the world figured they were in the know. As we mentioned earlier, the Romanovs barely went out ever since everything that happened in 1905. As a result, there was a distance between the Russian people and the imperial family. But soon, it would be the perfect time to bridge the gap. So the 300th anniversary of the Romanovs' reign was coming up. It was going to be an event to remember. No expense was spared. The festivities would be in St. Petersburg and would last an entire week. That's a week of balls, parades, fairs, operas, so on. In addition to the poor getting free meals and days off from work so they could party. On March 6, 1913, the imperial family made their way to the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan to kick off the celebrations with a special service. So here we have two conflicting accounts. In the Family Romanov by Candace Fleming, it says that the crowds were small. You know, there wasn't much cheering going on, especially when the Tsar and his family moved past them. But then in Robert K. Massey's Nicholas and Alexandra, which says that people were super duper excited, um, you know, the streets were overcrowded and people even managed to get past the soldiers to reach the carriage Nicholas and his family were riding in. Not sure why there are such different accounts, but, you know, there they are. So Nicholas and Alexandra entered the cathedral first and Nicholas looked nervous, as if he didn't feel safe or comfortable around the people he was with. How awful, right? So he was with his people and he didn't really want to be there with them. Uh-oh, not a good feeling. The next to enter was Alexei. And he had to be carried inside since he still couldn't walk. And then, you know, obviously people stared because what the hell? The heir to the Russian throne is being carried into the cathedral. But thankfully, their attentions were transferred to the girls when they strolled in. And it wasn't just because they were beautiful and lovely to look at. It was because people were trying to figure out who was who. Tells you a lot about the people's relationship with the girls. As in, there wasn't one. And it definitely doesn't help that they were all wearing similar dresses. Over the course of the celebrations, Nicholas and Alexandra attended several balls. And it was difficult for Alexandra, you know, as it usually is. But especially at this point, because after Alexei Spala episode, her health wasn't the best. Staying by her son's side the entire time and then collapsing afterwards left her drained. And she still hadn't fully recovered. At one of the balls, Nicholas had to help Alexandra out of the room before she passed out. So the celebrations continued for another few months throughout the country, and during this time, the imperial family traveled to Moscow. While visiting a monastery, an old woman asked Alexandra for a blessing. Alexandra not only blessed her, but also gave the woman her silk scarf. The people were overjoyed. They cheered for the Tsar and his family. Overall, the celebrations were a huge success. 
and even the Duma agreed. With all the partying coming to an end, it was time for Lexi to do that one thing that other boys his age did. Learn things! Because of his health, he didn't enter the classroom when he should have. But finally, he was well enough to start. Alexi was between the age of eight and a half and nine years old when Pierre Gilliard started tutoring him in French. So Alexi was an intelligent kid, but he did not know the meaning of discipline. Alexandra didn't have the heart to be stern with him, and Nicholas, although authoritative, couldn't be there every time Alexi needed to be scolded. But that wasn't the only problem. Alexi was practically an island onto himself. He couldn't socialize the way other kids could. He depended on the company of his family, but more so Derevenko and Nagorny. That was his whole world, and Gilliard wanted to expand it. Alexei was basically the original bubble boy, without living in an actual bubble. There was always someone there to catch him if he fell. Literally. Alexei, however, needed to learn how to handle things on his own, learn how to be careful. When Gilliard pitched this to Alexandra and Nicholas, surprisingly, they were all for giving Alexei more freedom. They loved him, but they wanted what was best for him. And Alexei, of course, was absolutely thrilled. While all was well in the beginning, eventually, there was an accident. Alexei fell off a chair he was standing on and bashed his knee. When he woke the next morning, he couldn't walk, and the pain only got worse. Alexandra, of course, stayed by his side. Nicholas came as often as he could. You know, he was running a country. They showered him with love and stories, and sometimes his sisters visited, even if it was only to give him a kiss. During all of this, Gilliard felt awful, but Nicholas and Alexandra wouldn't let the man blame himself. They took a risk. They knew there was a chance Alexei would get injured. Accidents happened, and as before, Alexei recovered. All was well. Until Alexei was born, Mikhail, Nicholas's youngest brother, was the Tsarevich. Remember, Nicholas also had another brother, George, who had ended up dying before Alexei's birth. So he was under constant watch. Mikhail, that is. He could only marry someone who was considered appropriate for the possible future czar, even if people didn't really think he would ever sit on the throne. In 1901, Mikhail fancied himself in love with a woman and even planned to elope in Italy. Luckily, his mother caught wind of it and put a stop to it before anything could happen. Putting it lightly, Maria was pissed. Then, in 1906, no longer the heir, Mikhail was once again in love. Her name was Natalia Cherimetivskaya, and he asked Nicholas if he could marry her. Mikhail did not want to let this woman go, but, you know, there were a few obstacles. Not only was Natalia from a more humble background, she'd been married twice before. And no, she was not a widow, she was divorced. Both times. Big no-no in royal families. It shouldn't come as a surprise that Nicholas said it wasn't going to happen. There were no hard feelings, you know. Mikhail understood the reason behind Nicholas's decision, so the lovely couple left the country so they could live together. And a few years later, a beautiful little boy entered the picture, who they named George. Then, in October of 1912, Mikhail and Natalia got married and told Nicholas after the fact. Nicholas was heartbroken. They had promised not to marry without his permission, and Mikhail broke his word. Essentially, as punishment, Nicholas barred Mikhail from Russia, and his ability to be regent for Alexei was null and void. The news also hit Nicholas at such an awful time. The marriage happened when Alexei was suffering at Spala, constantly teetering on the edge of life and death. And that was the reason for the rush secret wedding. If Alexei had died, Mikhail would have been the heir again. And then he sure as hell wouldn't have been able to marry Natalia. So they got married before anyone could tell them no. 
They were a package deal from that moment on. But, you know, it's not entirely bad news. Eventually, Nicholas and Mikhail reconciled, and Natalia and baby George were granted titles. Then, when World War I broke out, Mikhail and his family were allowed back into Russia to help with the war effort. Alright, so during the spring of 1914, Alexei was probably the healthiest he had ever been in his entire life. So, Nicholas played hooky for a day and spent it with his son. For one day, they were not Tsar and Zarevich. They were just a father and a son enjoying their time together. Then there's Olga. Oh, sweet Olga. Since she was 18 years old, it was time to start considering marriage. For a split second, there were whispers that she and the Prince of Wales, her cousin, the future Edward VIII, would get married, but nothing ever happened with that. It was literally all talk, but there was a serious contender for Olga's hand. Now, I'm going to let Adrian say this name because me rolling my tongue is not happening right now. So his name was Adrian. Take it away. Prince Karol of Romania. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. So it really came down to Olga sitting down with her parents and telling them that she didn't want to marry the prince. She didn't want a loveless marriage. And honestly, we really can't blame her. I mean, considering the fact that she grew up with parents so hopelessly in love, of course she would also want that for herself. And they wanted that for her as well. So, goodbye. Karol. No Russian princess for you. So, in the summer of 1914, it was vacation time once again. Lucky them. They boarded the Sandart and sailed for Finland. It was a lovely getaway for the family. Nicholas spent some much-needed time with the children. Alexandra relaxed on deck, making sure not to strain her back. And it was during this picturesque holiday that Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke, not the band and his wife were assassinated in Sarajevo. Nicholas didn't think the tragedy in Sarajevo would cause a war, so he didn't start the journey back to St. Petersburg. What he didn't know, couldn't know, was that because the assassin was from Serbia, Austria-Hungary blamed the Serbs and was threatening to go to war. But Archduke Ferdinand's assassination wasn't the only one attempted during those supercharged days. A woman in Siberia tried to kill Rasputin. She failed. He was seriously injured, but... Unfortunately, he survived. When news of Rasputin reached the Standard, pretty much everyone on board whose name wasn't Alexandra hoped the man would finally disappear. But alas. Alexandra's prayers for his recovery were just a little bit louder. Some prayers and two surgeries later, Rasputin was still firmly in the land of the living. Unfortunately. Yeah. And then, on July 28, 1914, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. And then Germany, Austria-Hungary's ally, declared war on Russia, who was an ally of Serbia. Do you see this pattern that's happening here? So, you know, lots of war. So the vacation was over. The family returned to Russia so Nicholas could issue a formal proclamation of war. On August 2nd, 1914, Nicholas stood in the Winter Palace while people shouted in the courtyard. The patriotism so thick, it's amazing people didn't choke on it. Flags were flown, love of the Tsar was cheered, hopes for victory were shared. People were able to put aside their anger and dislike for the imperial family. They were finally united as one people. Okay, it's a shame that it was a war against other countries that united them. They shouted things like, for defense of holy Russia. In what was known as Nicholas Hall, thousands of people, 5,000 to be precise, were packed in like sardines to witness Nicholas pray and then make his oath, which was, I solemnly swear that I will never make peace as long as a single enemy remains on Russian soil. Now, we took this quote from The Family Romanoff by Candace Fleming. Nicholas and his family then made their way out to the balcony overlooking the palace square 
where over 250,000 people were gathered, waiting for the Tsar to speak, but he couldn't. Nicholas was heartbroken that things had turned out the way that they had, so all he could do was make the sign of the cross. When he finally tried to speak, his words were drowned out by the sound of his people singing the imperial anthem. While Nicholas was crying, his people were cheering. Yeah, I mean, we we did infer that he was heartbroken. None of the research says that. We did infer that, you know, maybe we're projecting because I'd be heartbroken, but it just, it definitely seems like he's upset by this. I guess you could argue that maybe he's overcome with emotion that his people came together as one finally, but it it just seems more like he's um very upset and sad by this situation yeah like when adrian and i were talking about this earlier i i was just kind of like you know when you think about it he didn't think a war was going to happen after the assassination of archduke ferdinand and then not only did a war happen then you have germany declaring war on russia okay they were pulled into this war that honestly nicholas i don't think wanted anything to do with yeah and then like naturally this obviously pulls in his allies Britain and France because they all had a pact. So that's how it happens. Okay, we're not getting into World War One really within the Romanovs, only in terms of what is relevant. But that's how World War One happened because, you know, Russia had a pact with Serbia and Germany had a pact with Austria-Hungary. And because Russia had a pact with Serbia and France had a pact with Russia and Britain had a pact with Russia and they were all allies. So their pact was basically, if you go to war, we go to war. So hence World War One. All right, guys. So that is the end of part three of the Romanovs. Uh, we will pick up next time with World War One, with going to war, with, you know, what are their roles in World War One? What do they do? Um, and uh, we're going to tell you now, the Grand Duchesses and Alexandra did not sit around in palaces looking pretty. So remember, uh, we will very likely be having a poll on uh, Twitter um, in terms of when the last two episodes should be released because we really don't want to release them a month in between because they're going to be a the last two episodes and b um also the uh most heavy in terms of what we're going to talk about because we're bringing it through to the end so make sure you check twitter follow us on there and uh cast your vote all right guys thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of dear world love history historians out Hey everyone, I'm Kelly. And I'm Brittany. And we are the hosts of The Faves of Our Lives. We're a fairly new podcast that focuses on everyone's favorite everythings. Each season we talk about a different category, whether it be movies, music, books, etc. This season, we are discussing your favorite TV shows. Shows like The Office, Dexter, Dawson's Creek, Saved by the Bell, and much more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other podcast platforms. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Faves of Our L1 and let us know all about your faves. That's The Faves of Our L and the number one. We hope to become one of your faves soon. Hey, it's Erin. And this is Jordan. 
Each week, we dig up the facts on fascinating felonies. And mesmerizing misdemeanors. Join us as we prove that you don't have to know too much about the legal system to be crazy for a good true crime story. Subscribe to Crime Crazy on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And visit us at crimecrazypodcast.com. He doesn't even go here. (laughs) 